Good morning. Good to see you. Excited about um, continuing this book of Mark. About 60% of the way through. And, you know, the first 10 verse chapters, Mark takes this kind of bird's eye view and picks pieces from Jesus' three years of his life. It's just like you almost have to read the other Gospels to, you know, learn more about what happened exactly there and fill it out. And then, now the shift at chapter 11 and going forward all takes place in a week. So you got three years of these chapters, and now this next uh, seven or eight weeks, uh, six or seven weeks, will be just drilling down to one week's time. In fact, today we're going to cover three days of it. So what's left is really drilling down in that Passion Week uh, to all that happens is we are in also this Lenten season. You know, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and some of you are tuned into Lent, and others are like, huh, Lent? Where, where is that, you know? But it's an opportunity to really prepare ourselves for the coming uh, celebration of Easter as we walk through the rest of this um, passages in Mark. It begins uh, in Jericho. Tom left us last week, uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Jericho, and now it begins this ascent up to Jerusalem. And Jericho's actually the lowest city on earth, 800 feet below sea level. I don't know how you build a city 800 feet below sea level. It seems like it'd be wet, but they did it. And A dozen or so miles away is Jerusalem, now almost 3,000 feet above sea level. So this is a climb. And last year we had a series here at Journey on the Psalms of the Ascent of these different festivals where they would come at the Feast of Tabernacles. People would come around and they would make this ascent into Jerusalem at uh, Pentecost. And this, the biggest one, Passover, where we look back at what God's done, but especially the promise of what he is going to do, Passover. And this is sort of the buzz that's happening as, as they climb. And I don't know how many have ever climbed Mount Monadnock or gone up there. You know, it's, it's about 2,000 feet. Uh, anybody Mount Washington? Oh, look at that. That's about 4,600 feet. Somewhere in between there, a 3,800-foot ascent a climb. And as we pick up here in chapter 11, it's on page 717, Jesus has now made a good part of that already up into uh, Bethany, which is like, you know, already 2,800 feet of climb, and this is where this picks up. As they approached Jerusalem, And came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and said, Go into the village, and just as you enter it, you'll see a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. And they went, and they found a colt out in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought that colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, 
He sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches that they cut from the fields, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our God, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he went to the temple, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went back down to Bethany with the twelve. And it's the end of the first day. And the first response of three in chapter 11 to how people would respond to this movement where Jesus is getting a lot more clear about who he is and what he's bringing, and the reactions are getting a lot more pronounced. Before it was sort of, hey, don't tell anybody, don't spread the news, which sometimes people did anyway. But now he's drilling down in this final week, and it's getting more and more clear. From chapter 8, where Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the disciples seem to be getting it. It's starting to land for them. This really is the Messiah. This is the real deal. And others are starting to catch it as well. As you can see, one of the responses of people is this sort of spontaneous outbreak of worship and putting their coats on dusty ground and cutting down valuable branches and this procession we call Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it has both this kind of a warlike victory march, which wasn't the first time they had done that here. This wasn't a ceremony that you do for a long-lost relative or, you know, a political figure. It's somebody who's freeing us. And a couple of times over this 400 years of silence between Old and New Testament, there were warriors who came in and freed the Jews in some sense, and they would have this procession. And here we are again. Though he's not coming on a war horse, he's riding a donkey. It's not the same way they imagine it's going to go with this familiar battle and freeing the people, and yet Jesus lets it happen. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. End of the first day. It ended with fever pitch excitement, and Jesus just sort of anticlimactically goes into the temple, looks around, and heads back down to probably the home of Mary and Martha. It says that his day two begins. He's been sleeping on this, I guess. And, you know, soon will come that time in the garden of Gethsemane where he'll agonize with the Father if this is any other way this could go. And so we don't know what all is in his mind, but they reclimb that last uh, couple of miles from Bethany into Jerusalem. Verse 12, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it and he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs, he said to that tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard him, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. It's the first of three times in this section that we'll see this. They feared not so much him, but because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The end of day two. A couple of kind of strange stories. First, Jesus coming in. You know, you wonder if he had a bad night or he's a bit edgy. He's hungry. He's lonely. He's tired. He's <laughs> and he sees a fig tree and he curses it. Well, it's not the season for bearing figs. It seems a little extreme, like, wow, give him a break, you know? And then he goes into the temple, and uh, he's been there many times. He was just there the day before, and he seems to have a tantrum in that place. He's just overturning things. He's shouting. He's screaming. He loses his temper. It's like, what is going on? And most scholars think, well, it's, it's a bit more to the story. That Together, these two inform the other and are, a sense, in a sense, a dramatic, acted-out parable, each story revealing something of the other. That it was end of a season for the fig tree. It wasn't the fig tree was bad, but fig trees and olive trees Gardens and uh, wine uh, uh, vineyards, they represented this people, the Jewish people. And in a sense, it's, this season is over. There's a new one coming. It wasn't a bad one. It was good for where it was, but it's ending. And similarly, the temple which was built a thousand years before this by Solomon, is very important to the identity of who they are. And it didn't just begin with Solomon, but Abraham. Two thousand years earlier was called out to, to begin a people, a nation, through which the whole world would be blessed, us here included. And then Moses freeing them 1,500 years before this and building a tabernacle that they would travel with in the wilderness, and God would tabernacle and be with them, and then the building of the temple. 2,000 years of history. And Jesus is seeming to say, it's ending. You imagine the implications of that? Your whole identity, everything you've known, it's ending. And not on the greatest of terms. It was established to be a house of prayer for all nations, and yet it's become a place of protection from all nations. And it flourishes based on, in many ways, the poor who continue to support it through all of its regulations. Jesus is reminding them that, you know, even though this has an important history, 
um, it's not what's now going to carry forward. It's, it's the old covenant, not the new. And his purpose in blessing Israel was never the end, but a means to an end. It certainly wasn't a place of prayer for all nations, was it? In this temple, every hour they would burn sacrifices. Now just think about the trek if you're a good Jew making all the way up to Jerusalem during these festivals and you have to bring unblemished animals and you know they get nicked along the way or something and, and you get to the priest who's going to sacrifice it in that place and, and uh, they're like, oh sorry, this one's got a, you know, looks like he got nicked somewhere else. He, he didn't work. And just the challenge of making it up there. And so typically they would just buy and sell or, or buy uh, animals in the temple itself. And especially this is the case here now at Passover. And this court of the Gentiles was turned into this more secularized, just kind of a zoo of, of craziness. And one of the things required was an annual temple tax at Passover, a half a shekel. doesn't sound like very much, but it's like two days' wages everybody has to pay. And it's in the currency of the temple, so who has that? You know, you bring your own currency from wherever you live, and now you have to have it exchanged with a money changer. And they get a fee too. It's like half a day's wage just to, to exchange your money so you can pay your tax. And the rules at Passover, two unblemished doves have to be sacrificed. And so, I guess it would be hard to bring two doves up a truck like that, wouldn't it? And they're fairly cheap, half a shekel, a couple days wages maybe on the street, but in the temple, of course, no. They charge 20 times that. That's like 30, 40 days, 50 days wages to buy the doves to be sacrificed there. And so you can imagine, you know, people are, you know, they're not carrying their MasterCard up there to pay for this, so they got, they've been saving money up. Here's another festival we're saving up for. And so robbers along the way, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. They were, they were robbers. Well, yeah, these are like good for the picking, you know? They're coming up loaded with money up this treacherous climb and this ascent, and they finally get there. And what's required of them, Jesus is not happy about it. We know that even in John chapter 2, the first time he goes into the temple at Passover three years earlier, he does a similar thing. He makes a whip. And he's like, you've turned this house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves and robbers. The next chapter, he'll reference a widow that he sees in the temple who gives like half a penny. And he said, this woman has given more than anybody, for she gave out of what she didn't have. So it's a, it's a change coming. Day three. Oh, let me just say, uh, I, there, I, there is something about us as people 
that seems to be drawn to making penance for our sin. That if we can just make it right, rather than surrendering our lives. It's in every religion. People speak of Mecca being very similar to this for Islam. A couple of years ago, I was in Tirupati of India and this huge temple up on a mountain. It's a long drive up, and before you drive, you go through a search, specifically through all your vehicle, that there's no Christian items of any sort. Interesting how grace collides with law. And up here at the top of the mountain, a hundred thousand Hindus come every single day. And the offerings run in excess of a million dollars every single day. And people who are poor, and we get out in a parking lot and have to walk barefoot, you know, you get the sense that you're really paying your dues by the time you get up there. And some walk all the way up this mountain barefoot, the poor giving everything they have. And what is it? that we'd rather do this, spend all we have to appease an angry, demanding God so we can keep doing what we want to do. It's our ticket. Okay, I'm covered. Rather than losing our life for a God and trusting that He's good and He will more than amply supply our needs if we but trust Him and put Him first, we'd rather have religion, but how often religion gets in the way of God. And it wasn't just in those days, as we'll see. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom and the Pharisees, and everybody could see it coming. New wineskins new, new wine would be required for this new wine. The old fig tree isn't cursed because it's bad, but it's no longer the means here by which God is going to meet His people's deepest hunger and nourishment, a membership in a people. The old order of their temple, which had defined people in so many ways, is now being threatened. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You know, the, the way you define yourself gets threatened. You may lose a job, or you may lose a marriage, or you may lose a child, or you may lose a savings account. Or you, and, and all of a sudden, it's all like, who am I? And this is what was happening to these people. And then there's a second reaction on day two. Verse 20. Day three, rather. In the morning, as they went along, they saw that fig tree that was withered from the roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Huh? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them 
so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. He's beginning to lay out the rules of the new kingdom, this new covenant, and it is really different than the other one. It's not making a trek up to the top of a mountain, making a sacrifice, making a gift, and then going back and life as usual, see you at the next one. This is pretty different. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's one of the rules of the king. The, the, now the temple is you, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are. And greater works than these, says John in 14 and 12, greater works than these will you do in my name. The mantle is passing to his people. It's not completely end as of yet. There'll be the Pentecost and the infilling of the Holy Spirit who will accomplish this, but he's beginning to lay it out. And I can imagine these disciples like, what are you talking about? They're still kind of blown away by the fig tree withered. Well, great. You, hey, you, see that mountain over there? And the means by which it's done is faith and trust. Not in faith and trust, but in Jesus. And then he goes and he closes it with, but there's one thing that can actually hinder this. Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment. If while you're there about this, you remember that you hold something against somebody, forgive them so your Father in heaven may forgive you. Boy, how many of us would rather just pay a temple tax and have to do that? He's really raising up the bar, and this is a shift that's coming. Well, then, of course, he doesn't go long without encountering you-know-who, the religious people, the Pharisees. And so, verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority? And Jesus replied, Well, I'll ask you a question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. And they discussed it among themselves, and they said, Well, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men... And they feared the people. Here's the second time that comes up. For everyone held that John was really a prophet. And so Jesus, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he rented that vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And this was a familiar scenario to the people. Okay, whatever. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him. They beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant, and they struck this man on his head. And they treated him shamefully, and he sent still another and that one they killed. And who's he talking about here? The prophets. This was not a new story. This has been told about for hundreds of years. And he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. 
And here's the shift. And then he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of this vineyard do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. They knew that story. And then they looked for a way to arrest him. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were, what? Afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Wow, we'd say, those foolish, bad, 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 bad Pharisees. And clearly... You know, the story is good news for us. We we like a story like that, a parable like that, because we're the others. And yet, just as the reactions from these people, I, I can relate to those, and I wonder about you. It's good news unless, number one, I'm focused mostly on God doing what I want Him to do. My prayers are mostly about that. Oh, God, change this, change that. You know, and we live with this sense and this idea that, you know, if I'm doing the right things, God's going to do right by me. If I lift him up, he's going to raise me up. If I pledge my allegiance to him, he's going to protect me from bad things and bad people. If I promote him, well, certainly he'll promote me. And he is a good God, but as he says in Isaiah, his ways are not my ways. And how he does it, have you ever noticed that the means by which God blesses you is slightly different at times than the means that you would surely think would be the right way? And that whole exuberant people turned within just days to an angry mob saying, crucify him. And I find I can quickly shift like that, God, from, oh, holy God Almighty, to what are you doing to get away from me? To, you know, it may not be as vocal, but he is going to not do it my way. My ways are not his ways. Thank God my thoughts are not his thoughts. And good news turns to bad. And a second way that it does is when I'm looking to outside things to define who I am, which we all tend to do in some way. And particularly here it's talking about my religious standing. It wasn't just people's religious belief. It was their, their whole, how they were protected and how they were provisioned and all of that. And, and I can relate to that. You know, for 35 years, my whole provision has come through the ministry. That's how I live. I have a master's and a doctorate degree in this stuff. And it's my tribe and the people I hang around and those who make me 
feel good about who I am. And when that is threatened, and it does get threatened, well, how does it? Well, others advance above you, and you're set aside, and you're not respected in the way you really ought to be. Have you ever had that happen to you? John the Baptist is the prototype for us. He was clearly called by God, miraculously conceived by a barren woman, Elizabeth, and had his first encounter with Jesus when he was in the womb of his mother and leapt. And everybody knew he was the, well, the next Elijah, the prophet, and, but actually boots on the ground only a couple of months, baptizing when one of his disciples says, hey, our guys are starting to leave and follow the guy over there, Jesus. Yeah, he says, less of me and more of him. That's a supernatural response. Less of me, more of him. When I clutch on to what is rightfully mine, I've paid my dues, I've done my part. God, I'm entitled to this, surely. And he doesn't play like that. I can relate to these Pharisees. They see what's coming, and this is upsetting the whole thing. Who will we be after all? It took a major adjustment. You know, every New Testament writer was Jewish except for Luke. They had to have a significant shift from all that their culture had told them that they were to follow this Jesus. Paul the most, who was the most elite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and it took a, you know, a real lightning bolt to knock him off and to humble himself to follow the Christ. Last one. It's good news unless I dismiss my being the temple of the Holy Spirit and all that that entails. What does it entail? That this is not my body. I am not my own. That all that I possess, I'm only entrusted with. None of it's mine. It's a lot easier to go to church than to be the church. And his way of cleansing the temple is that there's no place for bitterness or unforgiveness or resentment. It's not a new thing. We say it in the Lord's Prayer as often as we recite that. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is, somebody said, giving up the right to a different or better past. And it doesn't come naturally. But when he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I am going to flow through you, this is the thing that will stop it. So I don't know how much you've thought about Lent this year. Lent is not like New Year's resolutions. You know, I'm going to give up meat or I'm going to give... It, it, it's about making, giving up something to make a greater space for God. That's what Lent is. And so I, I'm going to throw out something if you haven't already landed on what God's put in your heart for Lent this year. What if it was to give up bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness between now and Easter? Sometimes it'll, they'll just come upon you during the day, you know, that 
person cut you off in the parking lot. Someone took that last grocery cart when you were headed for it. Someone offended you today. That happens a lot. And at the end of the day, you know, it's just like a wiping off. I'm just going to release this. And in place of it, God, I just accept that person for who they are. And I forgive them, and I just pray you bless that wonderful lady who took my grocery cart. Just bless her. Or, or sometimes it's a lot deeper. You know, it goes way back, even to childhood, and things I've just been holding on to because, you know, this shouldn't have happened to me. True enough, but Jesus displays it this coming week when he's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And if he needs to do it, would he require less of us? Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. This is our communion Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, of Lent, I'm sorry. And when Paul gives instructions for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, I have received from the Lord that which I pass on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup, and he said, This is the new covenant. It's in my blood. And so drink it in remembrance of me. But whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And so, a man, a woman, ought to examine themselves before eating the bread or drinking of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing it's the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why so many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Yeah, so I'm going to invite you to not come forward and receive this in an unworthy manner if you can't sit and say, God, as you have revealed to me, I hold bitterness, resentment, harboring, uh, unforgiveness, you might just shed it right in that moment. Or you said, I've done this so many times, 70 times 7 perhaps. That's, that's good. In the AA world, it's clear resentment is one thing you cannot hold if you expect to be whole. You will certainly fall to an addiction that's much stronger. Resentment is the sure way for that. Jesus says, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, I will not flow through you. In the way that I have now called, this is the blocker. It is. And so maybe for you, you just, I, I'm not there yet. That's okay too. But then don't come forward. 
maybe these 40 days of Lent is the, the season where I just bring this every day. And it just begins, God, give me a heart willing to forgive and to release and to bless. And wouldn't it be something that the next time we celebrate this together, he's done that. Or sometime in this Lenten period, what freedom is, uh, uh, is there for you? as you're willing and able. So as the worship team comes forward and those who are going to disperse the elements come forward to do that, and just take a moment and as the scripture says, examine yourself. Is there someone that you, conti- that you still hold resentment, bitterness toward? And even in this moment, you are free to release it and to accept what has been a different past than you would have wanted and to bless that person even and to forgive. Then the freedom is yours. This is the new covenant made possible by the body and blood of Christ. And if not, yet then use that time to say oh god i want to be free i want to be a cleansed temple of the holy spirit not having anything that could block all that you want to do through me